America bids farewell to 2021, but what will 2022 bring? We'll look back and ahead. I'm Paul Brandis in Washington, and you're listening to West Wing Reports. It's Friday, December 31st. It has been a tough year, beginning with an attack on the Capitol and ending with another surge in COVID cases. In between, the pandemic rolled on, taking the lives of more than 400,000 Americans. The total death toll for the last two years, now well over 800,000. And the Omicron variant throwing everything into reverse gear as cases, hospitalizations, and deaths soar amid endless lines for COVID testing. Despite this gloom, the U.S. economy, or much of it at least, has done well. The job market booming, wages up, housing strong, the stock market flirting with all-time highs. But a surge in inflation is causing pain. There could be more to come in 2022. Overseas, there's more trouble. China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, climate change as well. And here at home, political division that seems worse than ever. No question a challenging year awaits. Let's get right into it. You know, Yogi Berra, the late great New York Yankee catcher, once said that it's hard to make predictions, especially about the future, but we're going to try here. And for that, I'm joined by Susan Page. She's the Washington Bureau Chief for USA Today. I'm a columnist there. And Susan, first, Happy New Year to you. And to you as well, Paul, let's hope for a less dramatic New Year than the year just passed. Certainly hope so. So 2021 saw, of course, a new president, an attack on the Capitol, which you just referred to, this deepening polarization between Republicans and Democrats. But something still got done, a giant infrastructure bill, for example. So before we talk about 2022, give me your brief thoughts on 2021. Well, I think it was a a mixed year. Um, I mean, looking just at the politics of it, uh, President Biden got inaugurated. That turned out to be a bigger achievement than we thought it might uh, might have been on Election Day. He uh, the Congress passed that big covid relief bill in March. And then on a bipartisan basis, that infrastructure bill later in the year. But I think there have been two big disappointments. One is that the bigger bill, the Build Back Better bill that he had hoped to get through by Christmas, that still stalled. And an even bigger problem has been the continuation of the COVID crisis. The fact that the pandemic is not under control, that we have this new Omicron uh, variant that has people very concerned. I think that has to be chalked up as, as something that has left people, people in this year feeling, I think, pretty anxious. It's really kind of a big question mark just hovering over uh, everything because nobody can say for sure whether there will be a a new variant or or anything. So we're really just uh, kind of going into the new year, I think, with some uh, trepidation. And uh, speaking of 2022, I suppose the big event here in Washington are the midterm elections in November, usually bad for the party in power, of course, and President Biden comes into the new year down in the polls. And history, as you know, always suggests at least 
that uh, the party out of power is going to do well. So we're possibly talking about a Republican takeover of the House. But uh, what do you think? Well, I think it's number one, it's a little early to be very confident about what's going to happen next November. But as you say, all the signs now are great. They're causing great consternation among among Democrats. Uh, You see that with the president's approval rating. That's one of the things that most uh, affects what happens in those congressional elections. You see it also in the rate of retirement among uh, Democratic members of Congress. Uh, 22 so far, I believe, have announced they're not running again compared with just 11 Republicans. And then they're kind of canaries in the coal mine. That's a sign that they think, number one, maybe they'll have trouble getting reelected. Some of them are from swing districts. Or number two, even for the ones from safe districts, if they believe that Democrats are gonna lose control, it means they would lose their majority status, they'd be back in the minority, none of them would be committee chairs. Uh, so you, you do see the conclusion, the quiet conclusion of a, fair, <clears throat> of a fair number of Democrats in the House that Democrats are likely to lose control in November. Although, you know, things change. There'll be a developments between now and November that we could not possibly foresee at this moment. It's no fun being in the minority, but uh, as you say, November is quite a ways off. On the other end of the Capitol, the Senate, uh, 34 seats up, uh, one third as usual. 14 are held by Democrats, 20 by Republicans. It's a 50-50 split now. What are your thoughts on what's going to happen there? Well, you know, as you say, historically, the party in power, the party that holds the White House, traditionally loses seats. That's more true in the House than in the Senate. But if there's a big Republican wave, that'll catch some Democratic Senate candidates uh, as well as Democratic candidates in the House. And of course, they only need to gain a seat to get majority status. It's not a very high bar to win back control of the Senate. Democrats are hopeful that the fact that Donald Trump is backing some some candidates in some key Senate races that are not seen as the strongest general election candidates, that that may help them. Uh, but it's, I think it's, uh, it's uh, hard. I think this is another source of concern for Democrats because of course, as hard as it is to get things done when you control both houses of Congress, you can just imagine how hard it would be for President Biden if he lost both houses of Congress in this first midterm election. Well, tell me more about that. I mean, we're talking, you <laughs> talked before about the Build Back a better bill, and uh, it's sort of a treading water now to be charitable about it because of this 50-50 split and Joe Manchin uh, and everything. He really has a very narrow window, it seems, to uh, get that final vote that he needs because if things switch in November, as we were just talking about, then he really would have uh, no hope uh, at at all of getting anything done uh, past uh, 2022, it seems. And of course, the reality, Paul, is that he doesn't have till November to do it uh, because we get when once we get past the first part of 2022, politics will begin to take over everything. It will become harder, not easier to get things done. I still think it is uh, possible that Democrats will get behind a build back better, a version of the build back better bill that is acceptable to Joe Manchin. And that would also bring along the progressives, of course, because, of course, you can't Democrats can't lose anybody on either side of their caucus. I think that Democrats understand this is perhaps 
their last chance in the foreseeable future to get something big done. And even if you pass a $1.75 trillion bill, smaller than progressives wanted, that is still a lot of money that would enable them to do things like universal pre-kindergarten across the country or some of the climate change initiatives that they want to do. So I have not yet counted out Democrats early in the year in getting something through. But I got to say, it's politics. It's not guaranteed. You know, when I read that, uh, I think the Washington Post had some good reporting on, on this, that, uh, you know, the, the, the areas that Manchin backed, climate change, as you say, uh, Obamacare and pre-K, I kind of thought of something that uh, Ronald Reagan once said, you're never going to get 100% of what you want. But I think Reagan said, I'm paraphrasing here, you know, you get 75, 80% of what you want now, come back for the rest uh, later. So it's certainly possible that they could make a deal based on uh, what the, what they agree on, minus perhaps the child care, although that's a big thing that uh, the House Democrats uh, really want. So it's kind of a tricky water for, for the president, I suppose. Well, that's right. But the most ca- powerful person on Capitol Hill is Nancy Pelosi. And Pelosi, like Ronald Reagan, is a very pragmatic politician. You know, they resemble each other in this way. Reagan was a very committed conservative, but he was willing to take half a loaf. Nancy Pelosi is a very committed liberal, but she's willing to take half a loaf. So that is one of the things we think this is Nancy going to be Nancy Pelosi's likely her last year in Congress after her long and very uh, uh, consequential career there. Uh, And I think that Pelosi is one of the reasons that some analysts think, hey, Democrats still might get this done. Taking the half a loaf. Now, we talked about the president uh, a minute ago. What's ahead for him? Like most presidents, of course, uh, his approval started to uh, fade uh, pretty much after uh, taking the oath of office. And it is now down uh, to rather surprising levels in the 40s and uh, low 40s. I've seen some numbers in the upper uh, 30s. But if you look at the real clear politics and the 538 averages, which, of course, aggregate all recent polling. Uh, It's not so healthy for him. Uh, Tell me about the year ahead for President Biden. Well, it's going to be a test. Uh, You know, he's not the first president to have a tough first year. I remember the first year of the Bill Clinton administration. That was pretty disastrous. And he managed to come back. President Biden had some successes, uh, both in Congress and in the world. But He's also had some disappointments. And I think the number one issue that elected him to the White House, the number one issue on which his presidency is going to be judged is COVID, is his ability to get under control uh, the pandemic, to let Americans feel a little more secure about their health and about the normalcy of their lives and their ability of their kids to go to school. And you'd have to say, in fairness, that he's had a mixed record on that. Some successes, lots of people vaccinated, boosted. Uh, Lots of people boosted, but we continue to have a core of Americans who refuse to get vaccinated. People are of all sorts are weary of wearing masks. Uh, It's a it's one of those things that is hard to do, but it's why people get elected as leaders to try to handle situations like this that are affecting the whole country. What do you make of his comment the other day that uh, there is no federal solution to this? It has to be handled at the state level. What what do you think of that? I, I thought that was a flummoxing. It was quite at odds with the position he took during the campaign. He was very critical of President Trump for leaving too much of this to the states 
not taking enough responsibility for the federal government. Now, he made that comment, but he didn't change any of his policies. So I wonder if it's one of those things that uh, was more of a misstatement than a statement of how he really feels. But 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 we'll see. Uh, you know, I did think it did catch my ear. I thought it was that was odds with his at odds with his previous positions. Interesting. And just uh, moving on here, uh, I, I'm delighted to have this chance to talk to you because you've been here for a while, although you're still quite young. It seems to me there there used to be a time, another era, frankly, when Republicans and Democrats would battle all day long, but there was still this civility and mutual respect among them. Certainly not the case now. And my question to you is, is that a bygone era? Can we somehow get that back or is it gone? Well, I hope we get back more civility. Uh, I mean, maybe we're going to be in a situation where the parties are pretty fiercely divided. You know, we no longer have liberal Republicans. We no longer have conservative Democrats. Uh, that's one That's one reason we see this polarization in our country. But I've been really distressed uh, by the, the fact that we seem to have so much difficulty having a respectful debate over issues. Uh, and uh, I, I'm not sure what to do about that. Um, I do hope that we can regain some of that. I hope we come to a time when perhaps we're not uh, feel quite so tribal. Um, but but we'll see. It's it's hard to be optimistic on the front. I was really um, taken aback uh, when President Biden was talking to uh, on Christmas Eve when he was wish sending out Christmas wishes. Uh, to random callers in NASA, and uh, and one of the callers used a phrase that is a signal for an obscenity against Biden. I was people are entitled to their views; they're entitled to express their views. But I was sorry that uh, that that happened. My thanks to Susan Page, the Washington bureau chief for USA Today. Her next book, by the way, a biography of TV news legend Barbara Walters. Her most recent books include biographies of Nancy Pelosi and Barbara Bush. On any given day in Washington, policy proposals are created, debated, and decimated by tens of thousands of people and organizations working behind the scenes. On 80 Proof Politics, a guest and I will visit a D.C. watering hole and distill the art of advocacy by pulling back the curtain a bit and taking a look at how they play their part in the sausage factory we call our federal government. So if you're at all interested in how the sausage is made, pull up a chair, grab a drink, and join us. After all, what goes better with sausage than a tall, cold one? So a lot of variables politically in the new year. We didn't even discuss former President Trump, by the way, who continues to cast a shadow over the Republican Party. The question, of course, will he or won't he run? The same question, by the way, applies to President Biden himself. Will he seek re-election? It's still early. Even so, big questions to keep an eye on for both men. Another big question, the U.S. economy. And for that, let's bring in Joel Neroff of Neroff Economics, a Pennsylvania-based advisory firm. He is one of the sharpest economic advisors in the country. Now, before we go in depth, uh, give our listeners, if you will, 
quick uh, two or three lines, bullet points, perhaps, on what we can expect in the new year, and then we'll go a little bit deeper. Well, I think the key thing is that you know we go into 22 in pretty good shape. The economy is essentially clawed back to where it was or almost where it was before the pandemic hit. The government has supported the economy immensely and, and a lot of people's incomes uh, are up, uh, wages are up, um, the stock market is up, but prices are up as well because the supply chain. So what we're looking at forward is to see what are those factors that drove the economy in, in 20 and especially 21, are they changing? And that's really the key at this particular point. You know, what's happening with the virus, what's happening with government support and the supply chain? Yeah, the virus, of course, is the big question mark. I think uh, we all were caught off guard by this latest uh, variant and no one can say whether Another variant will emerge next year. I think uh, that is just uh, overshadows everything, I suppose. Uh, so let's talk about a couple of uh, things here. Uh, you know, and this is sort of the uh, the haves and the have not question. Stocks are way up. Housing is way up. A lot of wealth being created. But then you read stories about how millions of people continue to live paycheck to paycheck uh, obviously, not everyone partaking in these big gains. How do you explain that? Well, you know, despite the fact that wages are rising and they've been rising at uh, all levels of income, prices have been rising as well. Uh, but this is an economy for decades now that has been rewarding, you know, the owners of capital rather than labor. And we're still seeing those situations take place. And even if your wages are going up, it's not just prices, it's things such as healthcare costs that are, uh, are driving you know, the problems that people are facing. So the redistribution of income really out of the middle uh, class into the upper income groups has continued and you're, you're getting this barbelling of income that's nothing new, but it's been you know, really accelerated uh, by the virus and the impacts that have occurred over the, the last two years. You know, you got to wonder were it not for all of the pandemic aid that the government has showered upon uh, Americans in the past two years, uh, would this gap that you just alluded to, would it be even uh, bigger now? I mean, what, the, what would that be like? I'm not sure that that would be the case. I think what the government did was it flooded all aspects of the economy uh, with funds. And it was behind you know, so much of the equity markets and the ability of, of people to, to buy homes. Now, clearly the housing market is a little bit different than the equity markets right now. Uh, and, and in terms of the distribution of income, I, I think that part of the economy, the housing market is not quite as um, bifurcated as the stock markets have been. So you do have middle and even some lower income households who are homeowners in, in all across the country that have benefited from it, that might not have benefited nearly as much as, as those who were able to invest in the equity markets are concerned. Interesting. Uh, moving on to the labor market, uh, uh, obviously unemployment 
is low, but then you've had a lot of people leave the labor force for a variety of reasons. Companies have a lot of trouble finding workers, I think close to 11 million jobs uh, open across the country. Companies simply can't find the people that they need. Uh, how do you see all this playing out in the year ahead? I don't think it's going to get a whole lot better at all. Actually, I think it will worsen. Uh, we're at a point where you can pretty much say we're at full employment. I mean, you know, economists can argue back and forth what exactly that number is, but it's, let's say, 4% plus or minus a quarter of a percent. We're pretty much there already. And, and so, you know, the real question is if the virus, even if it's, you know, eventually becomes endemic rather than pandemic, does it keep the labor force participation rate low and declining? It was expected to continue to decline, but it gapped down, you know, because of the pandemic. And I don't see, you know, major signs at this particular point that especially uh, baby boomers, for example, who uh, push forward retirement, now that they're in retirement, they're not rushing out to uh, rejoin the uh, workforce. They're getting used to where they are right now. So I don't see that the shortages that we have in this economy are gonna go away anytime soon. I think the difference is we're gonna have a lot slower growth, especially if we don't have another you know, significant government support program pass. And you know, I have no idea what's in Joe Manchin's mind, uh, and eventually we'll find out. But without that, I think we're looking for a lot slower growth in 22 than we had in the last two years. That's really a, a secular issue, I suppose, when you talk about the labor force. I mean, you look at uh, other data like the birth rate at, I think, a four decade low uh, immigration, even legal immigration is being uh, pressured. Meantime, you have all of these baby boomers, as you mentioned, Joel, uh, retiring, starting to take Social Security. You got to wonder uh, if uh, all these folks are retiring and yet on the other end end of the uh, the age spectrum, boy, there aren't enough people coming into the workforce to support them. Uh, talk about a slowing uh, economy. There simply aren't enough people coming in to pay taxes and not just taxes for Social Security, but just uh, taxes in general. Is that a big secular uh, concern of yours? It's an issue, um, you know, the baby, the baby boomers led to the baby busters, and, and we knew the demographics that were following uh, in Gen X. Millennials are now really becoming the key group in the economy. Uh, but we're also finding when you when you think about it, if we're down roughly four million people in terms of the number employed, yet the level of GDP is greater than where it was before the pandemic hit, it tells me at least that we've been making it up through productivity. And productivity had been growing extraordinarily weakly and disappointingly for a decade. So maybe what this is doing is forcing businesses to get back to the idea that they've got to concentrate on improving productivity. And hopefully what that'll do is allow for some you know, better increases or more consistent increases in wages across the board, not just getting income being driven through ownership of, of either uh, stocks or housing. Yeah, let's talk about inflation uh, for a moment. Uh, I think the latest CPI uh, reading close to six 
percent, I think, which pretty much erases, again, talking about Social Security, kind of erases the, uh, the cost of living that people are uh, getting. Now we hear about the Fed uh, talking about, uh, what, two or three rate hikes in the new year. Uh, rate hikes are uh, good for uh, curbing inflation, but they also act as brakes on economic activity, I suppose, too. What's going to happen with all that in the new year? Well, as far as the Fed's concerned, you know, I'm really not worried about the rate hikes. I mean, when you consider where we are right now, the problem we have in this economy is we've had these extraordinarily low rates for so long that people think it's normal. And that's probably the, the biggest problem the Fed has created for itself is the perception that, you know, 0% interest rates is a normal interest rate. Well, even if they go two or three, you know, rate hikes, we're still, you know, at or below 1%. That's not a normal interest rate. They've got three years or, or more of rate hikes before we get back just to neutral. So I'm not ready, you know, worried so much about the, the interest rate issues, at least in 22. Uh, I am concerned about how quickly we can untangle the, uh, the global supply chain. And, and that is, is an issue that I think we're going to have to face. If the economy slows down a little, it'll give the supply chain a little bit of breathing room in order to take care of some of the, the problems that are out there. But if we keep having uh, different variants show up and problems that persist on the virus side, it's going to take, I think, you know, well into, if not all the way through 22, before we see any significant improvement. That implies inflation's going to be eating at wage increases, if not overwhelming them for another year. Now, one thing about the pandemic, uh, I think everybody agrees that uh, it's just one big question mark going into the new year. What's interesting is if you look at jobless data in certain states, red states or blue states, I suppose, uh, I, I think uh, unemployment rates are lower in red states, uh, slightly higher in blue states. Again, they're all low everywhere. This is just on a relative uh, basis. And yet there's a big gap. Uh, between red and blue states in terms of uh, vaccination rates and hospital cases uh, and, and everything. Uh, what's your take on, on all of that? I mean, is there one, one color making a better policy decision here? I mean, the economy is better in some states, but uh, uh, deaths are higher. I mean, how do you, how, how do you kind of uh, put all that together? Well, I, I don't necessarily think that the virus... Uh, decisions being made by governors has, you know, really set the, uh, uh, the, the, the tone in terms of the differentials across state growth. I mean, we're, we're seeing, you know, uh, states have made the, these decisions on other factors and, and businesses, you know, Musk didn't make his decision to move to Texas because Texas had it strictly, strictly because Texas was a little bit more open in terms of the virus, but he had an awful lot of other reasons to make those decisions. And, you know, that's really the, the reality. He wasn't looking at this year, next year. He's looking at five, 10, 15 years out. And that's the way businesses are looking at that. So I think if you're looking at it, you're looking more on, on a tax and a subsidy basis rather than necessarily the short term. And if there is a difference, uh, that'll dissipate and is probably dissipating quickly at this point. Okay, and just summing up again, give me the big picture looking into uh, 2022. 
Well, we go into uh, 2022 in, in really good shape. The, the economy has clawed itself back, uh, but we have enormous uh, uncertainties. Uh, the uncertainties on government policy, which was what really drove the recovery, the massive recovery that, that we saw. We have uh, uncertainties as far as the supply chain, which is driven by the uncertainty around the virus. Uh, and, and those are the factors that will determine whether we have you know, average growth, mediocre growth, or strong growth again. Uh, if the pandemic fades uh, as we go through the year, if we get another major um, program coming from the government, then I think we could have a really good year. If the opposite occurs, I think it's going to be mediocre at best. Right now, it looks like we're setting up for a decent, if not solid, growth year as far as the economy is concerned. We'll open up the West Wing Report's time machine in a minute. First, though, let's hear about another Evergreen podcast that I know you'll enjoy. We often hear about the individuals who took the oath of office to become the chief executive. But what about the other people who play a role in each administration or the events that may not be as well known? but that contribute to the reshaping of the office of the American presidency. On the presidencies of the United States, we explore each administration beyond just the person holding the highest elected office in order to better understand the history that brought us to the modern-day presidency. I hope you'll join me on this journey through the annals of presidential history. Presidencies can be found anywhere fine podcasts can be found and is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Time now to open up the West Wing Report's archives and see what made history this week in the past. 1790, George Washington told the Seneca Nation that the United States was dedicated to friendship with Indians. The president told Indian leaders that, quote, you cannot be defrauded of your lands. You possess the right to sell and the right of refusing to sell. Later, history of U.S. relations with Indians showed that this was Hardly the case, and a century to the day after Washington's expressions of peace came the Wounded Knee Massacre of the Lakota tribe in South Dakota. It occurred during the presidency of Benjamin Harrison. Never before since Jamestown and Plymouth Rock has our American civilization been in such danger as now. 1940, Franklin Roosevelt warning Americans of the menace of Adolf Hitler and Nazi Germany. The Nazi masters of Germany have made it clear that they intend not only to dominate all life and thought in their own country, but also to enslave the whole of Europe and then to use the resources of Europe to dominate the rest of the world. In his fireside chat, Roosevelt said America must become the, quote, arsenal of democracy and shift to a wartime economy to make weapons to help defend Great Britain, which at the time was being bombed and under threat of Nazi invasion. Frankly and definitely, there is danger ahead. Danger against which we must prepare. But we well know 
that we cannot escape danger or the fear of it by crawling into bed and pulling the covers over our heads. America, of course, would be dragged into World War II a year later. 1969, not your father's GOP, President Nixon signing a sweeping tax reform bill. It cut taxes for most Americans, but raised them on the rich. It also exempted 9 million low-income citizens from paying any taxes at all and also boosted Social Security benefits. People also forget, by the way, that Nixon was an environmentalist, a big-time one. On New Year's Eve 1970, he signed what is arguably the most important environmental bill in U.S. history, the Clean Air Act amendments. It required the Environmental Protection Agency, created on his watch, by the way, to develop and enforce regulations to protect people from breathing bad air. It helped remove sulfur and nitrogen dioxide, carbon monoxide, ozone, and lead from the air, saving countless lives. Nixon said this in 1972. Each of us all across this great land has a stake in maintaining and improving environmental quality, clean air and clean water, the wise use of our land, the protection of wildlife and natural beauty, parks for all to enjoy. These are part of the birthright of every American. Want more history? Check out my books on Amazon. I'll sign them for you, too. Just shoot me an email, pbrandis at evergreenpodcasts.com. And need a speaker for your 2022 event? I do that, too. Current events, economics, analysis, history. I'll connect the dots, and I would love to hear from you. Speaking of books, by the way, I'll send you one if you download my new app. It's called West Wing Reports, available in Apple and Android stores. Just download it on your phone or tablet. There's a button called What's on Your Mind. All you do is push, talk, and send. That's it. And the question I have for you, how do you rate President Biden's job performance so far? He's been in office nearly a year. How do you think he's doing? Leave a comment and your name goes into a drawing for any of my books, your choice. I like to end each week with a quote, something you might find thoughtful. This week it's from Barack Obama and cuts across party lines. He said, quote, we are reminded that in the fleeting time we have on this earth, what matters most is not wealth or status or power or fame, but rather how well we have loved and what small part we have played in making the lives of other people better. Think about it. That's all for this week and this year. West Wing Reports is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. My thanks to Susan Page and Joel Naroff, audio clips from the National Archives. Our producer, sound designer, and engineer, Noah Fouts. Executive producers, Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm Paul Brandis at Washington. Happy New Year, and I'll see you in 2022. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts.